From the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin, welcome to The Surgery Set. I'm Jonathan Kohler, an assistant professor in pediatric surgery here in Madison, home of the Badgers. This is a podcast all about surgery and the individuals who are at the cutting edge of it, and we're glad you're here. Welcome to The Surgery Set. If you enjoy the program, please rate the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever you downloaded this. It really helps us grow. On this episode, I speak with Dr. Tatiana Hoyos-Gomez, one of our general surgery chief residents. Dr. Hoyos-Gomez earned her medical degree in her native country of Colombia, then started residency in Seattle at the University of Washington before joining us in Madison at the other UW. Dr. Hoyos Gomez gave a Grand Rounds talk on the need to break cultural barriers in order to provide quality health care. It was an amazing talk and a great reminder of how far we in medicine need to go to communicate clearly with our patients. We have a link to her talk on the Surgery Set webpage, surgery.wisc.edu slash podcast. I hope you enjoy our discussion. Dr. Hoyos, welcome to the Surgery Set. Thank you. This is always Thank a fun call. time of year when our chief residents come in and give grand rounds to the department. You guys are all grown up. It's just amazing how the time flies. Unbelievable that we are already here towards the end. It's crazy. And you you and I actually share a little bit more of our educational history than than I do with most of the residents here. Um, You, like I, started training in Seattle and found your way to Wisconsin. But Seattle wasn't the start of the story for you. Maybe you could just tell us a little bit about kind of your path and what brought you to the University of Wisconsin today. So I will start by saying that, yes, my journey has been a long one. I wouldn't change anything about it. It's been truly a remarkable experience for me. I started in Colombia where I trained. I went to medical school there in the capital city in Bogota. That's where I was born. During training, my family had to come to the U.S. because of the war and the political situation and safety situation in Colombia. Part of my family came here about 20 years ago. And so... Before you came here? Before I came here, yes. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I came here in about 2010 or so. And so they came here, but my nuclear family stayed in Colombia. And I went through med school and before med school, had the opportunity to come to the U.S., to my family's house, and take some English classes. And so I really worked on the language to the point where when I was in med school, I was able to use the English textbooks because they were cheaper. Oh, wow. And I could read, you know, in English. So most of my textbooks in medical school were in English. That was one of the advantages um, and what really led me to seek training opportunities here. It all started by curiosity. I just wanted to see how the system was here, how the education was here. So I came as a medical student to the Mass General Hospital. I just wanted to go to what was, you know, well-renowned as one of the best places to go. And I went there and did a surgical rotation. It was in surgical emergencies and emergency medicine. So Uh, this is like a fourth-year sub-I type thing. It was a sub-I. We had... I was a um, in my internship. Okay. Internship there is before you graduate, right before you graduate okay. that year. And so I took the opportunity to come, and I had the, my family here. I could live with them in Boston, and I could, you know, go and do my rotation there. And I really liked the educational system and the resources, really. I, I was in shock 
when I saw all the resources that we had here and that we didn't have in Colombia and all the different things, I was actually very surprised that we got CT scans here for an appendicitis. Hmm. That was the first shock I had because we never got CT scans in Colombia that time for appendicitis. We did made the diagnosis clinically and with labs, and we would take the patients to the OR. That was my first experience here, and then that kind of started me on the idea of maybe doing further training here. In the meantime, though, I knew I had to take the board, the USMLE uh, steps. Um, we are not really trained to take those steps, those tests in Colombia. Um, nowadays, it's a little different because a lot of people want to come train here. So some people take uh, six months off during med school to study for them and take them. But I made the decision towards the end of my uh, medical training. And I graduated, I did my social service year in the Air Force, in an, um, in an Air Force base, hmm. uh, where I was studying for the steps, and I was working. So and you work as a general practitioner or something? Yep. Yeah. And so everyone in Colombia, in order for us to get the medical license, you need to practice in an underserved area or a red zone area. Or military, military bases yeah. or remote towns that are in war. Um, and so I wanted to shorten my social service year, so I did six months in an Air Force base. Okay. It was actually a really nice experience. Um, I also learned about um, aviation medical problems and things like that, and I got to treat some of the pilots with ear infections and things like that and learn new things. But after I was done with social service year, I continued to, to study for my steps because I had to take all of them to be able to come. And it took me a little bit of over two years because I was working after my social service year. I was working full time and uh, I was studying at the end of the day, like an hour or two. So it really uh -huh. took me a longer time. Yeah. So I worked as an, as an internist, basically. Yeah. yeah. And I was working as in the emergency department, actually, oh, okay. as a provider for a um, kind of third level in a healthcare institution. Uh -huh. And I also was a family physician and I had my group of people with different families, and I was taking care of children and doing growth and development to the adults and elder, elders with uh, diabetes and hypertension and all those things, wow. always knowing that I wanted to do surgery. Yeah. And then finally, I was able to get all my steps done and come here to do research to improve my likelihood and my chances to get into a surgical specialty, yeah. into a surgical uh, residency. Where did you do that? I did the research fellowship in Harvard in uh, plastic surgery department because I was very interested initially in cleft lip and palate because I did a lot of uh, pro bono work with the Operation Smile director in Colombia. Oh, wow. And I oh, fell cool. in love with cleft lip and palate, and so I did research in cleft lip and palate yeah. in, in Boston. Uh, and after that, I did a, few, I did a few observerships, and then I ended up in Seattle where they have an amazing program for international medical graduates. It's a one-year, two-year program. Actually, it was a couple months for me where they let them um, have a hands-on experience, and that way they know how you work, and then they will offer you preliminary spot um, in surgery if they like you. Right. I was a resident there sort of through the traditional standard American pathway, which by comparison seems so boring. And so less educational in a way. But um, I remember, you know, we would get these these international medical grads who would come through. Oftentimes they were, you know, fully trained surgeons in their mm -hmm. home countries. 
Um, and I remember as an intern thinking, man, these guys make me look so bad, you know, because they've been practicing medicine all this time. I don't know what I'm doing. I think it, it always sprung from Carlos Pellegrini's own experience, which I think was sort of similar to yours. He was the chairman there, and he had, like, found his way to America with $5 in his pocket and a friend he'd made being an interpreter of a, a speech that someone from the University of Chicago had had made um, in Argentina when he was there. So, it's, I mean, it's it is an amazing... Yeah, his story is fascinating. Yeah. And so then you were in in Seattle for a a couple of years and then found your way out to Madison. Yeah. So I was there for two years. You know, one of the reasons why I say that I wouldn't change anything in my journey is because being in medicine for a couple of years gave me a little bit more confidence as a doctor. And for me, it it eased things um, as I transitioned into being a doctor in a different um, country with a different language. I had no idea what a PCA meant, like all the abbreviations we use here. I had to learn all that, and I had no idea what it things meant. It's a completely different language, yeah. right? Beyond English. Yeah, and to be a competent resident in a different culture with a different language is a special challenge, but I think the, ma- the maturity that being a doctor gave me years prior in Colombia and the research and the training and everything just made things a little bit easier for me. And the topic of your talk today, which was awesome, is is about that issue of cultural competency and how we as physicians can can do the most we can to make our patients from cultures different from our own feel more comfortable. Can you talk a little bit about sort of the strategies you think work best and what you as somebody who's now totally culturally competent in at least two cultures, how you approach patients whose culture you maybe don't understand as well. You know, that's the challenge that I was uh, posing today in my talk, is that even though you could be familiar with multiple cultures, it's very challenging to be competent in multiple cultures because there's so much information. Anywhere you are in the U.S., you will see multiple cultures that you're going to have to take care of. The number one thing that I would say is um, the first step, essentially, is to recognize stereotypes, the stereotypes and the biases that you have. Control the assumptions that you make. A lot of that is unconscious. And so, as I was saying in my talk, I I took a few implicit association bias bias tests, and I was very surprised to see my own biases. So making that unconsciousness conscious and being aware of that is the first best step. And then recognizing that that the patient is going to be the source of information. But you can go to cross-cultural interaction prepared, and that's when the tools come in. We have tools here in University of Wisconsin and through the Uconnect webpage available that will help you at least get a little bit of knowledge, not to stereotype again, because everyone is so different even within their own culture, mm-hmm. but to generalize but knowing that a lot of the information you're going to obtain from the patient. But if you know their customs or a general idea of how they communicate or who makes the decisions, who makes medical decisions in the family, then you will be less surprised and you will be more equipped to address these challenging interactions with the patients. Yeah, and we can put links to some of those cultural tests, which I think are fascinating. I mean, I've taken a few of them and mm-hmm. been horrified at the results. Um, And we can put those up on the website for for the podcast, too, if people are interested in finding them. I think that's that's great, right? Obviously, like, the first step is understand you have a 
a problem or that you're not you're not as ambivalent or as unbiased as you maybe want to think you are and then using tools to sort of improve that the other thing you talked a lot about is is how we communicate with patients right how we interact with them and there's some pretty remarkable statistics that you quoted about how uh, we as providers make assumptions about how much patients for whom English is not a first language or, or who are from a different culture, how much we assume they understand that maybe they don't understand so well. Yeah. So one of the statistics that I showed, and I, I was very surprised when I did my research and saw the number, 48% of non-English speakers didn't have an interpreter during a healthcare visit. And as you may remember from the talk, the 37 million people that don't speak English in the country, the vast majority feel that they don't speak the language very well. So that leads to a lot of misinterpretations, misunderstandings. And if the patients misunderstand what you're trying to explain to them, they won't be compliant and you will have bad outcomes. And so it is very important, and data has shown, that the use of medical interpreters really changes not only their level of satisfaction with the healthcare visit, but also the outcomes. And interpreters are really important too. If I spoke Spanish slightly better, I might feel inclined to try to just do it on my own rather than wait for someone to come or get a phone interpreter, you know. But it's it's much more than just sort of being able to pigeon your way through the words you would say in English saying them in another language, right? Interpretation is is much more than that. And there's real value to having somebody who's professionally trained in it as opposed to you just sort of feeling like, well, I can say, where does it hurt in Spanish? So I don't need to get someone up here. Yeah, I've seen people that have a level of English try to translate themselves uh, or to, to speak in their language. And it, it really is not the same. You can ask someone, tiene dolor, you know, all those things. But mm -hmm. really, the patients will answer the question, but there's no real communication. Language is a manifestation of culture. In that sense, medical interpreters can be also cultural translators. They are more culturally concordant with the patient, and um, they will be able to maybe bring up some of the cultural issues during that, that encounter that can be addressed immediately. And the way they translate is not only just a word-for-word interpretation of what's being said, but also the meaning of, meaning of things, as Shiva was saying today. Very insightful. So I think to do your best with the language that you know, if, if it's not that you are bilingual, then you should have a medical interpreter who are professionally trained to do that. Yeah. And don't make assumptions that if you go into the room and say to a patient who clearly doesn't speak English as their first language, do you understand English? Everyone nods yes. And then you talk and it's clear they have no idea what you're saying, but they're not going to... I mean, it's hard to say that to a doctor as an authority figure in the room, like, oh, I don't get that. Can you please go get an interpreter? I mean, like that assumes a power dynamic that, that doesn't really exist, right? Like if we walk in and, and speak in English, most people are not going to feel comfortable saying, I don't understand. Could you please go get an interpreter? Right, and that's when we have to challenge our um, patient-physician relationship of power and just really get to the patient level and say, listen, I am not from your own culture. I want to understand a little better your view of things, um, how you perceive pain, how, you, how it is. Get that information from the patient because you probably won't see a lot of that iceberg occult part of culture mm -hmm. that you can just 
you know, some people can infer, but I think the use of um, cultural brokers, I think we're heading that way, actually, because it's, it's very difficult for us to be multicultural. As I said, you just have to be culturally humble and understand that there's a difference and that if that difference is not addressed, then it's going to be just very difficult to take care of that patient. Right. It's like you don't have to understand every culture. You just have to know that you don't understand every culture. Yeah. And use the tools to get a little bit of knowledge so that you can go prepared to your interaction with the patient and get the best outcome that you can. In your talk, we were joined by the chief diversity officer from the university as well who offered some points. I think there were some kind of basic principles around using interpreters that that you talked about, like it's better to have an in-person interpreter than a phone interpreter. This is not a shock. And trying to sort of not not speak in whole long paragraphs and then wait for the interpreter to catch up, sort of basic points around how we work with a, a language barrier. Yeah, so as you were saying, a few sentences, three or four sentences for the interpreter to be able to translate that to the patient. It also has to do with the uh, emotional charge of the conversation and that professional interpreters know how to pace themselves. Sometimes they start, as uh, Shiva said, they start doing their interpretation almost simultaneously when there's an emotional charge because no one can wait for for everything to be stopped because there's emotions involved. So they start to do this simultaneous interpretation. Number two is always, as a provider, make eye contact with the patient and talk to the patient directly. Right, like you're not talking to the interpreter, right? You're, you are not you're talking, talking to, to the, the patient. interpreter. The interpreter's in the corner. They're not going to be offended if you're not like speaking to them and asking them to speak to the patient. And the last thing that I wanted to say is always ask the patient, and I think this is true not only for interactions with patients that don't speak your language, but even for English-speaking patients. Ask them to tell you what they understood from the conversation. That's the only way that you're going to know if, they, if there was actually communication. And they got the point. Right, that teach back, yeah. which takes, takes two minutes. Yeah. It adds time, but not a lot of time and is so important. I, th- I see that in surgery all the time, even with English-speaking patients, because we go in and we jabber in medicalese, and we say, oh, yeah, you just take this catheter and you put it in here and you flush it out real quick and it's fine, and then, you know, or you just change this dressing, like, watch me do it, you know. But if you ever actually take the time to have the patient then teach you how to do it, you see how many steps they miss because they haven't been doing this for 20 years, right? This is the first time they're seeing it. They're doing it to their own child or their own relative. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a completely different frame of reference. Like even like the culture of medicine to the culture of not medicine. Mm-hmm. And I always forget that. I mean, I've spent more time in hospitals than out of them for the past 20 years. And so like it's a natural environment for me. But culturally, like just physicians are different from non-physicians. Totally. I totally see that. Yep, that happens. We see those barriers every day on our practice. So, Yeah, so it's not even, like, forget the obviously important issue of language, but this issue of culture, like, even exists within sort of hospital to non-hospital. Yeah. Everywhere you look, right? The more you you think about it, the more you see there are these barriers to communication. Right, and that not only different cultures and ethnicities, but all, also uh, minorities, uh, the, uh, sexual minorities, gender minorities, political, religious minorities. This is true for all the underrepresented communities. And as you said, even physician, non-physician, there's a barrier there, and we have to just challenge that power relationship, put ourselves to the level of the other person, and 
just have a person to person conversation. Right. Yeah. I mean, you, as you pointed out, people have said this so eloquently, you know, it, trick of patient care is caring for the patient or, you know, I forget the exact quote, but I mean, it's like step one, like care about them, put them first yeah, and, and then sort of do whatever you have to do to make the cultural boundaries disappear. Yeah. Cause patients don't care how much, you know, they want to know how much you care. Yeah. 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 And no, showing them that you're understanding the differences and that you're interested in overcoming that difference so that you can be at the same level communicating what you want them to understand and sometimes meeting in the middle sometimes you won't get what you want and you have to just meet in the middle um, with the patient to in order for them to be compliant yeah because it's not that you need an interpreter to tell the patient what you're going to do right you need an interpreter or a cultural competency to have a conversation about what the patient wants done to themselves exactly yeah yep and mistrust and compliance are two of the biggest things when, when patients uh, don't really understand what you're telling them and they are not really on board with what you're recommending if they have those, those issues. So, yep. Well, it's so fantastic the way you illustrated this and reminded all of us that we have a long way to go in breaking down these barriers and, and in respecting the cultural differences of our patients and a fantastic talk that folks should take the time to look at independent of the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. And um, you're off to Oregon next year for a critical care and trauma fellowship. I am. So exciting. Mm -hmm. I am very excited. Yep. Yeah. We wish you all the very best. And thank you so much again. Thank you, Dr. Kohler. Join us next time on The Surgery Set when I speak with Dr. Mary Klingensmith, professor of surgery at Washington University and recent chair of the American Board of Surgery. We discuss competency-based education in surgery, a favorite topic of the surgery set. Tune in and thank you for listening. The Surgery Set is a production of the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This episode was produced by Chelsea Johnson and me, Jonathan Kohler. It was recorded by Chris Hansen and edited by Elizabeth DiNovella. Our theme song is On Wisconsin, arranged and produced by Jamie Schmidt. I encourage you to visit us at surgery.wisc.edu, where you can find links to Grand Rounds, free CME credits, and more. You can also check out the UW School of Medicine and Public Health video library for a wide range of medical education resources at videos.med.wisc.edu. In addition, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Podbean, and Stitcher. And of course, you can follow us on social media. You can like our Facebook page and also find us on Twitter at WiscSurgery, and I'm at J.E. Kohler, K-O-H-L-E-R. Please feel free to let us know how we're doing, rate and review us on your podcast app, and don't hesitate to let us know of any topics you'd like us to cover. Thanks, and we hope you check back soon. On Wisconsin.